Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Bree Wolfson, founder of the Kool-Aid Factory. Bree, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Eric. In your career, you've you've spent a few years at Stripe, uh, notably starting Stripe Press. Um, you uh, spent a couple years at Figma, um, and now you've set out to create the Kool Aid Factory, uh, where I've gotten uh, I've had the lucky opportunity to to work with you a little bit. Why don't you introduce the audience to what is the Kool Aid Factory, and what uh, what are you hoping to create with it? Yeah. The Kool-Aid Factory, I would say, started out as a research project about how great organizations throughout history coordinate to just get stuff done. And through my research, I ended up talking to a bunch of founders, mostly of startups or scaling companies. So that also turned into me doing some kind of consulting and hands-on work with those companies as well. So part research, part hands-on work with companies in figuring out how to coordinate to get things done. And when did you know that you wanted to, to create the Kool-Aid Factory? Give a little bit of the story of, of how it came to be. Yeah, so it came together, three threads in my life, I think, sort of con- converged at, uh, at a particular moment in time. And the first thread was through my work standing up Stripe Press, I was reading a lot of the advice for startups canon. And I saw how deep it went for company strategy, product building, engineering, management, but things were so thin on the culture and company building side and specifically advice for operators. What could a person in the corner of an organization do to help contribute? Um, The second thread was when I moved from Stripe to Figma. One of the reasons I was so excited to go there is that I was joining a melting pot of sorts of people from all these great organizations, Square, Intercom, Dropbox, Zendesk, list, list goes on. And it got me thinking about whether there could exist a kind of global playbook for Silicon Valley Um, that anyone could take advantage of as they are building companies. And then the third was that realizing just how much Stripe truly invested time and care in the company building stuff. And I thought there might be a there there. So uh, late last year, I took a grant from Emergent Ventures to dive in full time on the research part. COVID was a nice time to sit in a pile of my books and research. And now it feels like I kind of work for Silicon Valley instead of any single company. It's been a total blast. And I'm so grateful to the founders who have been willing to let me dive in on their worlds and, and lend a hand when I can. And go back to your first point. Why do you think um, that while the, the Valley has developed a lot of frameworks around, uh, you know, building products and, and raising money, that um, things have felt very thin on the on the culture, culture side of things? Yeah, I think one reason for this is in some ways it feels like some of the strategy stuff can can be a little bit more copy and paste or that people who have done great work or seen great work can kind of bring that with them to the next company and sort of repeat some great stuff. And I think there's a notion that companies all kind of do it their own way, which is in terms of the company building and culture building, which is totally true. But still, even with that being said, I have found that there is kind of a playbook for ways that companies or mechanisms that companies lean on to coordinate, even if the implementation of it is a little bit different at each one. So one example I always give is like a company all hands. Everyone's kind of got it, um, but it looks it just looks pretty different at everyone. But that doesn't mean there isn't a set of principles that everyone can use when deciding to roll out their all, all hands. So 
Molly Graham, I believe, has this term "black hole words." It, yeah. it, a term that's <laughs> thrown around um, that everyone thinks they know what, what they mean by it, but uh, people have different interpretations of it, right? Um, and so, culture is, is one of them um, in that it's uh, it's kind of this, this this fuzzy idea. How do you, how do you think about defining culture? So, so we're all starting from the same place. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And it's funny, you know this, Eric, from being with me from the beginning of the project, that I wasn't sure if I should even use the word culture when I was talking about the the work. But over time, it's just become increasingly clear to me that this this is the the business that I'm in now. And I'm um, so I'm getting more acquainted with with that side of things. But the way that I define culture, and it's just for the perspective of my work, I wouldn't say this is any kind of like grander unifying theory, but I would define culture as how it feels to get the work done. Um, and the tricky thing is, is everybody's having their own feeling of, or having their own sense of how it feels to get the work done. So a lot of the the work that I do in Kool-Aid Factory is kind of helping the companies kind of converge on a set of on a set of norms and expectations. And, and say more about sort of the relationship between culture and and, and operating. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. I like I know I know you're um, familiar with this too because mm-hmm. A16Z invokes it. But I like the Bushido quote here that culture is not a both set of beliefs; it's a set of actions. Um, and beliefs is a good way to start or stating your values and norms are, and hopefully we'll talk more about that later, but it's really about the set of actions that everybody is doing at the company that will really lead to how it feels to get the work done. Um, and one of my theories about Kool-Aid is you can actually get quite prescriptive about culture by just prescribing the ways that things can get done. So that's how I, I, I do think they're intimately connected in, in the company environment. Is there a, a tangible example that comes to mind? Yeah, I think maybe one straightforward example could be a launch review. So say a company wants to launch something, what are the set of kind of checks that someone might need to go through before a blog post gets published or a product goes live? And just by prescribing the set of things you have to do, you have to partner up with someone on marketing to make sure the blog post is going to be consistent with other language and messaging, making sure that a bunch of users have beta tested the product to ensure that you're not missing anything, making sure it's gone through security review to be sure that it's not going to lead to a breach down the line. These sorts of prescriptive processes that help you kind of move the work along, if you can prescribe them, um, it does sort of lead you to start prescribing what what the culture wants from you. How how do you think about measuring uh, culture or or how teams should should be evaluating what is sort of the challenges or opportunities there? Yeah, I think this is a really tricky part of the work that I do. And I do think a lot of it is based on feeling and I don't want to overmeasure on intuition, but I have kind of thought about this a bunch through the course of my work. And I'm not sure this is going to be where I land, but something that I'm thinking about right now is an idea that was presented to me that there is no good or bad culture, just a strength of culture. And I think strength of culture centers around an idea of kind of org cohesion. If you were to take a random sample of a bunch of people at the organization, would they all say the same thing about what the mission and the vision is, what the priorities are? So strength of culture would be like how many people are answering those questions in the same way. So I think that could be one way to measure just like how much cohesion is there on the stuff that really matters. I've actually heard one example of a company measuring their culture by asking their users to describe it to them and then seeing what the gap is between how they feel that they operate versus how their users see them, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then I think it's just like kind of, are you proud of the actions of the organization? When you look around, do you see things that feel like you and that you're proud of? Um, or are you like, Ick, that doesn't feel like me or I don't want to be a part of this? How do you think about um, this idea of sort of bottoms up versus tops down? 
in terms of culture, culture setting. As in, does it come from the founder or is it yeah. everybody's job? Yep. Yeah. I mean, the culture really does belong to everyone. And I get this question a lot. And I think that culture will almost always start with the founder um, or the set of founders. And that's because they will probably carry the vision of the company. They it will The company will probably rely on a lot of their natural strengths and inclinations when it comes to what work the company does and how the company does it. But this doesn't mean that the culture equals the founder. And especially as the company is growing, great founders are going to have to evolve to fit the, the culture to the new needs of the business, organization, product, ecosystem, etc. There's another story from A16Z here that I like, which is that they you know, they have a strong culture of taking founders very seriously, wanting to use their time well. Um, and part of that is making sure that everyone shows up on time for meetings. And I think it's Ben who says that he is kind of like naturally often late, but he didn't want to make a culture of being late to meetings part of the culture of the organization. So he implemented like a system where there's a tip jar or something if you come late to the meeting. And I think that's a great example of a founder or a leader being self-aware enough to know about where he or she naturally gravitates and then putting some systems in place to make sure that that anything kind of that would hold the company back doesn't become part of the culture just because it's part of the founder's natural inclination. And just to, to remind people why this is so important, what are sort of the, the benefits that founders think about? Like, why should they care so much about this? Is it a, a retention thing? Is, is, is it, it's a quality of work thing? It's a team alignment thing? Like, how, how do you really think about why this is so important to get right? Yeah, I one thing that I really believe to be true about working in these environments, especially in tech companies, is that really everybody does just want the same things. Everybody wants the companies to succeed. Everybody wants to do great work. Everybody wants to be supported in doing great work. And the more the company can kind of cohere around the ways to do that and to help each other do that, just the more connected employees will feel to each other and the easier and more satisfying it will be to get the work done. I think company planning is one of like the great examples of this kind of thing where I think it's one of those things that everybody sort of just bemoans. It's like, oh, meta work, work about work. We're not doing anything. We're just writing documents about what we intend to do. But really why companies might do this kind of thing is just to make sure that everybody's going to have shared enthusiasm around the same stuff. They're going to be able to ship. They're not going to end up with 80% of a bunch of stuff done and 100% on nothing. Um, and it's just about me mechanisms to grease the wheels of interacting and help people just do the things they already want to do, which is just get shit done and make it work. So, so what it looks like when it's working well is sort of what you experienced, you know, at Stripe perhaps is, you know, high quality people doing, you know, high quality work, you know, and, and, and having a great time doing it and finding meaning and purpose in it, thus sort of creating a flywheel such that more high quality people are like, wow you know, strike people are, are really good and, and, you know, really enjoying their work. I, I too want to work there. Is that sort yeah. of, yeah, that's a great articulation of it. One thing we had in our early values is that teams are not territories. And I think it's obvious when you say it like that, but sometimes it gets hard to remember that that's true when you're really in it and you're competing for budgets and someone's blocking a hire that you really want. And I think what culture does is it just becomes an extremely strong center or it can become a very strong center of gravity for a company to remind everyone at all times, like, well, hey, we're all in this together. We want the same things. We want to help each other and we should help each other. Uh, we can default to trust and that doesn't feel hard to do. You're not distracted by 
breaches to that trust or to work relationship. So it just sort of greases the wheels of getting stuff done. And it just makes it more satisfying to do the work. Yeah. Let, let, let's get more tactical using, um, can you give some examples of, of things that you saw Stripe uh, do really well that other companies can learn from? Yeah. One thing I, and I try to be careful not to over rotate this work on Stripe because a lot of companies do this stuff and there's a lot of great organizations um, that do this stuff too. But of course, I'm most intimately aware of the details of how Stripe did things. So that's where a lot of my examples end up coming from. But one thing I think that surprises a lot of people when I tell them is just how often the operating principles were cited in the in day-to-day work. And the operating principles was just an articulated set of, um, I would say, rules for the way that we aspire to work together. And they're kind of used as reminders for people on how, how to do great work and how to work together well. So just, you, you truly could not get through a day at Stripe without hearing them multiple times. You know, they were using one-to-one conversations in meetings, they were used in all hands for presentations, they were used to set strategy. So I think that articulating the values and then having everybody act as kind of stewards of those with each other is one example of just how much Stripe was kind of invested in this center of gravity for the whole company. What was sort of exceptional about those operating principles or, or what's really important to, to, to get right? One of the things companies you know, work with you on is how, how to create their operating principles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if anything was truly exceptional about the principles themselves, but I think what was exceptional was just how much everybody internalized them and wanted to use them in their own work. And I think that that is kind of like an internal comms feat potentially is just to make sure everyone's aware of them. Everybody understands why we aspire to work in those ways and then is internalizes them to such an extent that they will use them in their, in the run of work with each other. And how did you make uh, at Stripe? How did it make, how did it become cool to sort of uh, keep this culture going? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, I think a little bit of it was just pride in the company and acting as a good steward of it. Um, and I don't think there's a real shortcut there. Um, I think you just have to see them working. One example of an operating principle from Stripe that I love was what we called the front page test. So the idea there is if something that you were doing ended up on the front page of the New York Times out of context, would that be okay? Um, And, you know, Stripe is a financial infrastructure company. It takes, you know, security, privacy really seriously. So just kind of seeing how to use front page tests in the run of work, being like, ooh, I don't think we should do this this way. Would this pass the front page test? Just like making that so the it actually made the work better to kind of remind each other of that kind of thing all the time, I think just helps you internalize it and then use it, um, especially as the company's growing fast and ushering in the next generation of people who are going to use it too. So the front page is an example of, of a norm that you had at Stripe. How, how do you instill such a norm? I think there's a few vectors where you can do this. One is, I know we talked about this a bunch, um, signing the values when you start or before you start, getting exposed to them in company onboarding, seeing them show up in the company's praise or praise systems, seeing them come up in the all hands or on these strategy docs. And I think really the leaders of the company have to kind of own the drumbeat on that. Um, if they see something that could backlink to a value, making sure that it's stated. Um, I think language is like the real anchor here. Um, so getting prescriptive about like, what are the literal words that you want people to use, making sure they're kind of meme worthy so that they're easy to for, for other people to repeat and, and be consistent as they flow through the org. But just making sure there's a lot of outlets for that specific language in all the work the company does, really. 
Yeah. One of the things that you've t- told me a bunch about is the importance of, of internal comms and, and treating it like a, like a first class product. T- talk about what it means or why that's so important and, and what it means or looks like when, when, you, when people are doing that. Yeah. You know, this, my, my thinking around this comes a lot from, from Claire Stripe COO, longtime COO. And something that she would always say to me is like, okay, this sounds good, but how are you going to bring other people along? Um, and that's a question that I always ask myself when I'm writing something in public or when I'm working with a company is like, okay, sure. You can say that this thing is true, but how are you going to make everyone else believe it? How are you going to help everyone repeat it on their behalf? And I think a good internal comms approach does exactly this thing. It helps everybody actually understand the decisions of the company. It keeps people aware and context flowing all the time. Um, it acts as like the steward of great communication. It's prescriptive about what language it uses. Again, like according to these operating principles, like making sure everyone's using the same kind of keywords and phrases for the stuff that matters. So yeah, it's really just a mechanism and making sure everybody can wrap their arms around the stuff that the company's doing, not only understand it, but kind of like internalize it and embrace it in a way that makes them really feel kind of connected to it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about when culture gets really important, it's it's after you know companies start to get some traction. They're starting to hire some people. They're now focused on on org building, not just product building. And that's when we started to work, work with you and, and, and found you really valuable. When you talk about what that adjustment is like and why it could be so challenging for people. Yeah, you know, I've never been a founder or a company leader necessarily, but I do work with a lot who are kind of facing this thing. And Eric, this is definitely you too. So chime in if you have other ideas or examples, but I think it's the transition from like, you know, building the product and kind of focusing on those outcomes. And, you know, let's be real. That's a a lot of the reason that founders get into this game is to kind of solve a problem that they are facing themselves on the bet that other people might be having this problem too. And then when it comes to the company building stuff, it's a whole new set of things. And it's an emotional one because it's it's people's, livelihoods in their hands. Um, so I just, I hear a lot of kind of anxiety and stress around it. It's often a new skill set. Yeah. Eric Chiman, if any of these things are sounding familiar, unfamiliar to you. Yeah, no, I, I, it, for us, we really scaled our, our product team and just didn't scale the rest of the org to, to meet them. And so there are all sorts of, of new challenges that we hadn't for, foreseen. And, and we sort of under the, under the perspective that, growth solves all problems, but it actually like creates a lot of problems <laughs> Yeah, uh, that it doesn't solve. Yeah. Something I like, I think a really natural retort to this, you know, company focus on company building thing is the, the growth, growth solves all problems thing. And I think it definitely helps you bury the bodies in some ways, but I also think that it's sort of a shallow grave there. Um, and that eventually this stuff is going to come out. And if, you're not hearing any problems from or murmurings from within your org. It's probably because people aren't telling you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, people often come knocking on my door when they've kind of experienced what I kind of, what I call like a breach of culture in some way. There's been some surprise. A founder can't believe that X happened at their company where X might be a decision was made without you that went in a direction you wouldn't have gone. Someone shares something at all hands that maybe they say is the perspective of the company, but you don't agree with it. Two people are working on exactly the same thing and they didn't know about each other's work. 
So it's these kind of like surprises that come up and you're like, wow, I can't believe our company has gotten here already. What can we do to kind of like bring it back to center and make sure everyone's staying on the same page? So that's like the 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 moment in time I hear um, when founders come knocking. Uh, sh- share more about some of the some of the telltale signs that you know people are experiencing. Founders are experiencing this. Yeah, I hear um, one common one that I hear actually is that they see on a calendar or if they're in person in a meeting room that two people are meeting and they don't know what it's about, <laughs> and it turns the tummy. And um, I think you know there's. There's a bunch of things that could be going on there. I think this is why I hear this so commonly. One is because you're just becoming aware of that people are doing things at the company you don't know. There's like, companies will normally exist for a long time where you know everything going on. Um, So that's a big one. Another thing is founders feeling like a loss of control over like their calendars. They're in meetings. They don't know why. They don't feel totally useful um, stuff is coming to them and they feel like someone else should be able to make those decisions on their own. They've moved into a very reactive workflow. Um, they feel like they only have time for meetings and emailing, this sort of stuff where it's like the company's not quite humming on its own. And it, that is usually the time where I'm like, okay, it's time to start setting up some of these systems and processes to kind of bring your company to the next to the next phase of company building. Yeah. So Let's let's talk about that that next phase of, of company building. How, how do you sort of frame what that is, or what sort of the the meta point, or, or to describe it, and then let's get into some of the subpoints around it. Yeah. So I think the really big transition that's happening, and this is not only for the founder, this is for everybody who works at the company, is in the early days, trust and context is totally free. It just happens by default. Like all information moves through osmosis. Everybody knows everyone. They know their kids and then their spouses and their names, they know what they do on the weekends, they know the quality of their work, strengths and weaknesses. And then as the company grows and the average distance between any two employees grows, you need to kind of do more to earn the trust and context. So everything is kind of through the lens of that. Um, What systems, norms, processes can you put in place to help people like keep earning that trust between each other, even if they don't have a default familiarity, if that makes sense. Well, let's go deeper into like, you were talking earlier about uh, operating principles. Talk about the difference between operating principles and, and values. Yeah. So this is a, a drumbeat that I've been on for some time now. I really, um, I like when companies go with operating principles over values. Um, and one reason I say for this is that operating principles actually should evolve over time. Um, we talked before about how the needs of the business will change, the user base will change, the company will change. So having the ability to make breaking changes to your operating principles um, allows you to kind of like scale and change as you go. Um, One example I like to give of this is, you know, Facebook's move fast and break things is probably the most famous example of an operating principle. They actually did update it to move fast with stable infrastructure. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have quite a catchy ring, as catchy of a ring, but it does kind of make you rethink about how you want to operate for the next evolution of, of the company. Another great example from a company that I've worked with is they had a, an operating principle around frugality. Um, but as soon as they raised some money, it actually made more sense to, to spend money um, and remove the, op- the operating principle of frugality. So these things, like you, you want to make room for them to evolve. Um, it's also a good way to signal to your company, like, hey, we're actually making a breaking change to, to how we do things. Yeah. The um, one thing you you created um, for us was 
was non-values. Uh, uh, and, and that's actually been really inspiring to, really helpful to us. And, and other CEOs have reached out to me saying, oh, how did you do that? Um, you know, we, we should do that as well. T- talk about what is the thinking behind non-values? Yeah. So one reason I think these operating principles are so important is it helps you just put pen to paper on exactly what you mean by it being like a good kind of fit for someone to work here. Um, And it sets expectations with not only the employees that are already at the company, but new people who are going to come in the door. So I'll actually read a quote from from Patrick Stripe's founder on this one in conversation with Alad Gill for the High Growth Handbook, which was Stripe Press's first book. But he says, if you aren't having these explicit conversations about what your culture is and, and the downsides are threefold, you don't have the right people joining you. You're being unfair to those who do join you in the sense that they end up being surprised by this emergent friction and tension in work styles. Thirdly, and I think this may be the non-obvious one, people's disposition with regards to the company is actually a function of what they feel like they signed up for. If they feel like they signed up for an all-encompassing project, they'll be much more likely, more willing to treat it as such than if they discovered it by surprise later on. And so you can actually change the outcome simply by being explicit at the outset. So the non-values for Onda, I think, played exactly this role. They just set expectations. Hey, it's perfectly reasonable for a person to want this kind of thing at work. But if you do, you just aren't going to get it here. Um, and it's better to have that conversation early. It's very painful to have it when when an employee is already in the door. Yeah. I, and I think your litmus test for what a good non-value is like, this is something that a person reasonably wants at a company. Was it something yeah. like that? Yes, exactly. And look, this is really about what this stuff is. It's not to say that you want everybody to be like everybody at the company. Um, but saying yes to everything is, you know, it's kind of like saying yes to nothing. So you just want to be crisp upon about the stuff that really matters to you and how you operate. And it just doesn't mean that it's for everybody all the time, um, yeah. which I think is actually kind of a hard thing to, to reckon with, especially in this um, job market and kind of greater climate, cultural climate. But I do think it it pans out better for everyone when the, just the expectations are are clear about what someone's getting into. And look, I think if somebody, I mean, I won't speak for you, Eric, but many of the founders that I work with are exceedingly reasonable people. If they felt like one of these values was turning someone away that they would actually want to have, I think there's a there would be a great effort to rethink them. Yeah, for sure. Let's have another transition, which is from you. You were mentioning one of the tension points is people starting to sort of you know, butt into each other a bit or, or grab their own work ad hoc to, you know, what does it look like to get crisp over who does what and when? Yeah, I think that we talked a little bit about how pe- how much people will bemoan company planning, but I actually think this is key to unlocking maybe like more of a multi-lane highway of development. I see a common trend that that companies will get stuck kind of put, advancing a lot of work, but not really shipping anything. And planning is one of those things that help companies focus on the stuff that really matters. It helps get um, work completely over the line. Um, It unlocks more shipping velocity and not just speed. But yeah, planning, resolving dependencies, saying no to things that you really, really want to do. This is another clarism. Um, It doesn't count if it doesn't hurt (laughs) when you say no in prioritization. It's about getting the right org structure in place. Um, ladders of levels, another thing that people really bemoan, but as an employee, I've always found them very helpful to know where I sit within an org. Um, so it's really kind of all about focus and, and, and codification again. Yeah. And what, what, what mistakes do you see people make when it comes to company planning or, or what's what else is really important to get right here? Yeah. Prioritization is the big one on the planning side of things. Like you're going to have to say no to stuff that you really, 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 really want to do. 
I think that's a good sign. Usually there's, there's no scarcity of high priority things to work on. And then along with that prioritization in terms of like decision-making and deciding what to work on, it's also staffing that stuff. So a lot of times you can kind of nominally make a decision about what to prioritize and then the org doesn't fall in line behind it. So that's one big one. And then the other one is after you make the plans to set up accountability mechanisms to make sure that teams are actually shipping towards them. So I see a lot of like great plans then just like, you know, get printed out and put on a desk and no one looks at them again, total waste of time. Um, But setting up some infrastructure or mechanisms to kind of check in on progress on those key priorities is another um, great thing to do, like right as your planning ends. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's focus on another transition. The, the idea from sort of as the company scales, you know, founders get less close to the customer and, you know, more, more removed from how things are actually going. And yeah. so how do they, and just leadership in general, sort of stay abreast of, of, of what's really happening and, and stay close to the customer? How, how do you advise founders in terms of how to create like processes and systems to, to make that happen? Yeah, this is another thing that I think just, it happens through osmosis so naturally in the beginning, you know, the user voice is kind of just always around. You have really, you have a lot of context on how your employees are doing and feeling in their work lives and personal lives. And this is one of those kind of cultural breaches I hear a lot about when founders come to me for the first time. They'll say like, I had no idea that this top performer was going to quit or that this user was about to churn. And they're like, yikes, how did I miss this? And I think there's some really great mechanisms, again, to stay in touch with this stuff. which is even just like silly things like spinning up Slack channels or email lists where people can, anyone around the organization can just contribute to things that they're hearing from users. Um, Just trying to hang out in watering holes as much you can. Like where do your users gather when they're not on your product? You know, Mathilde Collin from Front, she talked about going to, um, she learned a lot of her early users were truckers. So she was going to a bunch of trucking conferences. Um, These sorts of things is just like making sure you have some processes in place to get you there. On the employee side, this is when companies start to think about rolling out their employee voice survey, doing a more formal feedback giving and sharing process. Um, so these sorts of systems where you actually spend some dedicated time just to the to the feedback on, on how the company is doing. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. How about in terms of just the, in the information sharing, make, you know, how do you make sure it goes to the, the right place or, or talk more about sort of how to get information flows right? Oh man, I think this is actually really, really, really tough nut to crack. I think there's two two prongs to the approach here. One is, and this is something I know we talked about a lot for at on deck, is moving from kind of work moving through a series of one-on-ones to setting up forums to preside over work. So to use the example that we used before of maybe like a launch review. You know, before maybe you would just you just had a standing one-on-one with the product manager of every team that was launching products. So you would just naturally know how the launch was going. Then the company gets bigger. It's not quite clear who to talk to you all the time. And the one-on-ones aren't getting you the information maybe that you need. So instead of having a bunch of one-on-ones to kind of cobble together the story of what's launching and when and how, um, you actually just have a single forum where people come when it's time to launch a product. And what's neat about that is that the all the information comes to company leaders or comes to a central forum. Um, and maybe you even have like a template to, to make sure that things are kind of apples to apples or setting expectations with what to bring there. But it also kind of produced the notes from that forum also kind of produce an artifact of how the work is going on key work streams. Um, so if you can design this set of forums, company-wide forums, 
in the right way, you can actually start to get the information flows really right because you're telling the company, hey, we prioritize this thing, these things. This is what the company presides over. And then the system of prep and notes from those forms actually becomes an information flow in and of itself that kind of people can lurk into. But cool. So, so we've gone through a, a few different transitions here. Um, how exactly do you find yourself working with, with CEOs and with leadership teams? Yeah, I work with companies in a few ways. One is kind of in this very informal, what, what feels like research to me and feels like kicking ideas around to founders is just when one of these breaches comes up or someone's um, worried about a breach coming up is just to talk through some of these tactics and mechanisms. And those are mostly very casual conversations. I also run a workshop. I've been running a workshop with lots of founders called How We Operate. Um, and that kind of takes a sort of ethnographic look about how the company's doing. And what founders have told me is that they really appreciate an outside perspective on what their company looks like. A lot of the things that are the most spectacular and amazing about how they're operating feels totally normal. Um, you know, how does a fish describe water kind of thing? So that's another way to kind of do this ethnography about how companies are operating. And then every now and then I'll do a sprint with a company where we'll like take on one of these tactics. Maybe it's company planning, maybe it's setting up comms and distribution channels, maybe it's writing operating principles, um, and we'll kind of in tandem do some do some work together. Yeah. And, and talk about how that ethnography works. Like, what are, what are the questions that you're really looking to, to get the answers to when, when, when you do that? Yeah, the, the magic questions there are what patterns and norms are contributing to our success, and what patterns and norms are either holding us back today, or do we predict will soon? So the example of the frugality or the move fast and break things, taking a look at just what are like the natural ways we're doing things today? What do we want to keep with us as we grow? And what do we want to change or aspire to do differently in the future? Yeah. Um, and, and what sort of like in your own research, where, where do you think we know the least about like, like what questions are you still asking yourself in terms of like, you know, your, your own knowledge about the field or just like Silicon Valley's knowledge about the field because it still feels you know, somewhat early relative to some of the other, you know, elements of, of product building, as we were saying before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one question that I get a lot and I'm excited to dive in on is some of the org structure stuff. Like, are there optimal ways to organize groups of people within a company to kind of maximize, maximize the impact or the ways that employees can work together? And I think this is one of those things that's like, it's really expensive to experiment with in terms of like employee satisfaction. It's kind of makes sense to just go with the default. If you mess up the org stuff, you kind of can end up making a lot of people unhappy <laughs> and unproductive. So I'm excited to think about new ways that teams can exist um, in terms of just a, a general org structure. Yeah, that's really interesting. How do you see culture change? Um, like there, there are times where you know, the right culture was perfect for one moment of a company's growth. And now the company is in a different phase and kind of needs to implement new cultural principles that are, are maybe, maybe the opposite of, of what it had prior sort of, um, yeah. how, how, what do you advise there? What, what have you seen there? Yeah, this is another one of those kind of common breaches that someone will talk with. There's an, an early person who is totally critical to the company's success in the early days and the founder is starting to feel like that person may no longer be a fit for the next phase. That's a really tough moment. And I think is a one of those tells that the company has kind of evolved um, beyond its original founding principles. And 
this is usually actually just kind of like a a people thing. Um, I think Molly Graham actually says this too, or now maybe I'm mixing it up if it's Sheryl Sandberg, but I think it's Molly Graham who says like an employee's job is to like evolve at the same rate of or faster than the company's evolving. And we know how fast these companies are, are changing. So if there's an employee who does, who for some reason is not, or does not want to evolve with the company, I think having a conversation with that employee about whether they do want to evolve or it's just not the right fit anymore. Um, and I think having those conversations with a baseline of having set expectations about like their role and its evolution is the right place to start. It's not, it won't be good for anyone if that conversation's a surprise. And maybe that's something as formal as ladders and levels. Maybe it's something as informal as just kind of projects that this person is expected to complete. But yeah, it usually comes down to kind of conversation with individuals about whether they want to evolve with the company or not. Um, and hopefully it makes things more mutual in terms of a departure. Yeah. For entrepreneurs who listen to this, who they themselves are, are starting to grow their company, starting to think through these, these challenges or, or, or these opportunities, where can people learn more? And, 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 and plug a little bit on what's, what's to come with Coolie Factory. Where really you- make me say it, like, and subscribe. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I mean, I think about this stuff all day, every day. I really love it. And the, the reason this work feels so personal to me is that I think I was kind of like a little bit of a lost puppy. You know, I wanted to care about my work a lot and I wanted to do great stuff, but I wasn't sure how. Um, and working at Stripe, who was just so, they cared so much about helping build the culture and helping their employees succeed. It really made a meaningful difference on my life. So I really feel connected to this work and reading about it and thinking about how founders can unlock that for their employees. So yes, following along with the Kool-Aid factory, I'm excited to do a better job of telling people about what I'm also reading and what I'm inspired by. So keep on the lookout for that. Um, The next issue that I'll ship is totally focused on planning, which is probably why a lot of the conversation gravitated towards it today. Um, before the end of the year, more on company-wide communication and collaboration. And then, yeah, hopefully just working with more founders and talking to more founders because this this work is so important, I think. Yeah. And and, and you've had a really important uh, impact uh, on, on deck uh, in terms of, you know, helping us create our operating principles and, and non-values and think through lots of different culture um, elements. So, uh, thank you for all, all, all the help you, you've given us, and, and thanks for sharing that with uh, with our audience here. Oh, and thank you, Eric, for the opportunity. I mean, I I learn so much all the time um, through my work, and it's different reading in the books than getting hands on. So I said this in the beginning, but I'm just so grateful to um, founders and employees for kind of opening their arms to allow me to do this work and research and think more deeply. And it's just so fun to get to talk about this and think about this all day. So thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.